do winter. <laughs> it happens every February, right? And every Super Bowl Sunday, it feels like. So this morning, we're going to continue in this series, and I was thinking recently, so when I, one of the fun things about playing baseball in Laurel as a kid was at the end of the season, we had a city tournament, um, but in Laurel, we got to combine with Billings, and so the year that I was 11, so it was a 10, 11, 12 league, there were 64 teams in the Billings City Tournament that we were in, and generally, Laurel teams went to that tournament to get their butts kicked, like that was just kind of the accepted thing. You, you lost, I think it was single elimination, you just lost and you were done. Uh, but that year, uh, we, had, we, had a, we had a couple good pitchers that could both go six innings, and then we had this kid on our team, uh, his, his name was Derek, he was 12, so it was an 11 and 12-year-old league, or 10, 11, 12-year-old league, but Derek was 12, and he was, he was your classic, just, just early developed, big old 12-year-old kid uh, that my dad and, and the guy that he coached with were super excited when they drafted him because he was strong as an ox. But he was also a kid who just swung for the fences. And, and all year long, he just struggled. I mean, it was that classic kind of in BP, he just crushed it. And then when we got to a game, he'd just strike out every time. <clears throat> and, I, and I don't know where my dad got the idea, but heading into that tournament, he cut a deal with Derek. And the deal was, you can swing as hard as you want until you have one strike. And then how about after you have one strike, you just try to make contact with the ball. And Derek bought into the philosophy, and we, we rode Derek and a couple pitchers to the final four of the tournament, because I forget how many home runs he hit in the tournament, but nobody feared him because he didn't have a good season, so there wasn't good scouting on him. And then he'd get up there and just clear the bases. He had a couple games with multiple home runs. And that's kind of the way I'm thinking about this morning. Like, this, this has been a weird week of prep for me, because probably like all of us, it's, I don't like to think of terms and things in terms of like, how do you just avoid the bad? And, and, and how do you just like settle for making contact with the ball? Uh, but if the research can be trusted, and what, part of what I want to do is say, I don't think it's just the research from modern science. I think Jesus and the kingdom of God has something similar to say. It would seem like when it comes to relationships, uh, sometimes it's not about Disneyland and it's not about these high, awesome experiences. Sometimes it's just about making contact with the ball, which in the relational sense seems to be just avoiding the bad. In fact, the, the question that the science asks, and if you're following us in this book, it's chapter two in the book, is this, this question of what if bad is stronger than good? And I've, I've argued with myself for months, and then this week argued with myself pretty extensively of like, that is such a like anti-resurrection kind of statement. Because everything about Jesus is that good wins, that good is better, that light prevails. And yet everything about the science that's being outlined in this book would seem to suggest, and, and I'll we'll point to some of it, is that at the end of the day, bad is stronger than good. And I think part of what we mean by that is, like, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. Like, like one, because this is the way I want relationships to work. I think of them like bank accounts, and I still actually kind of do like that metaphor. And there's this, this idea that, Hey, we just, we just got to break even, or at least we got to just be a little bit like in the black by a few bucks. And, and I've, I've processed relationships in the past where it just was as simple as to say like we were just in deficit. But if in fact strong, bad is stronger than good, I, I think that metaphor is, is imperfect because it would demonstrate that it's not about having a buck in the bank account. That when it comes to parenting or friendship or marriage or workplace relationship, it's more like, I, I don't know, it kind of gets arbitrary, but like $1,000 in the positive is kind of the, the new zero. Uh, because the research would seem to suggest, and this is what we're going to explore, is that, that, that one bad isn't nullified by one good. That it's, it, it's, it's such an overwhelming ratio that sometimes maybe our attention is better spent of going like, we just have to avoid the bad. 
Uh, think of it this way. Uh, this, I think, can put some handles on it. Uh, think of a relationship that you've had that was at some point a, a good relationship, a friendship, maybe you're divorced, maybe your marriage is struggling, uh, maybe, you, maybe in a parenting realm, maybe you're estranged from a child or a family member. Think of a relationship that was once good. Now let me ask you this question. What happened? Like, what caused it to go so bad? And I think this research would beg us to ask this question, what, like, how many bad things had to happen? And, and is the volume of bad actually as great as maybe your emotions tell you that they are? What, what, if, what if bad is stronger than good? One of the bits of research that they cite in, the, in, this, in this book was, it was conducted at the University of Kentucky, I think by John Calipari, it was a basketball joke for those of you that... It was a, it was a, and, and really what they wanted to know is they wanted to study dating relationships and figure out why do some dating relationships keep going and others end. And so they, they brought up this one particular scenario where they just kind of... Uh, they, they wanted to get them thinking about the classic situation, like there's suddenly a bad thing introduced to the relationship, like he chews with his mouth open, or like she eats ice, or what else could we come up with here? Just, just, just a little annoying things. He never puts the lid back on the toothpaste, or the lid is never put down, those types of issues. And so then they, they, they gave people this scenario. Okay, so here's the scenario. Now here's the options that you have. Option A, <clears throat> you let it slide and, and hope things improve. And what they wanted to know is, given these options, which ones are, are, are most likely to cause the relationship to thrive? Option A, let it slide and hope things improve. Option B, uh, explain what bothers you and, and work out a compromise. So notice, both of these are constructive, you might say. Both of them are positive. Uh, one of them's passive. One, one, one of them's very direct. But, but they're both constructive by nature. And now we get into some destructive options. Option C, uh, you sulk. Uh, you say nothing, but I think we can all relate that, that you just emotionally withdraw. So now you've got a passive but kind of a destructive approach. And option D then is the opposite of the, the passive, it's direct. Uh, you head for the exit, you create a fight, you erupt, you, you kind of, I've had it, you know, the proverbial last straw hits. Here's what they wanted to know. What, what is the most likely reason that a relationship, a dating relationship ends? And here's, here's the part that, again, like this just, it just bugs me that this is true. What they found was the more virtuous, like constructive, whether passive, and in this sense, maybe from a, even from a Jesus perspective, they're just like, it's Fred's, like, I'm just going to pray that God will talk to you about that if it bugs you, and he'll talk to me about it if it's, if it's on me. Those, or, or even the more direct but constructive, like, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to erupt, I'm going to find a good moment, we're going to have this conversation, and I'm going to say, you know, you chew with your mouth open, we're going to do that. What they found is it actually doesn't, it doesn't change anything. And f instead, what the research suggested is if you really want to correlate why relationships end, it's the bad. It's, it's when there's a negative, when there's an explosion. It's why if you read the book, you'll see one of the real mantras is, uh, of the research is good enough is good enough. And, and in a way that, again, it just bugs me. And it's just like good enough involves avoiding the bad. I don't like it. So then there's another bit of research. And maybe you've heard of John Gottman. Sorry, Gabby, I forgot to give you a blank there, didn't I? We're not going to go to that quote yet, just yet. There's another bit of, bit of research by a guy named John Gottman. And if, you've not, if you're not familiar with him, I mean, he's, I dare say, one of the most reputable marriage thinkers around right now. And that's in large part because his ideas are very founded in research. 
Uh, my understanding is his, his lab, so to speak, is a cabin somewhere in the Pacific Northwest where you come spend extended days, and then this part weirds me out, where he, at different points in your stay, like he hooks probes up to you and your partner, and then at certain points he like cues up certain conversations, and then they video record you having these conversations, and then they'll, they'll throughout the study, they'll periodically pull you into like a one-on-one -on -one conversation, and they'll ask you, what were you feeling here, and what were you thinking here? And John Gottman, it's scary. I, it's north of 80% of the time he can predict after spending time with you and your partner whether or not your, your relationship will make it. Kind of freaky. Guess what the number one thing he filters for is? Contempt. What he says is the biggest tell in whether or not a relationship makes it is this idea that when she gets critical, if he matches the negativity, they're in trouble. When he gets angry or he gets critical, if, if the partner matches it, he, he, he says that leads to a contempt that ultimately spirals the relationship. And now we can go to that quote. Here, here's a quote directly from the research, and it just, again, it just bugs me. It says this, what's critical is avoiding the negative. Being able to hold your tongue rather than say something nasty or spiteful will do much more for your relationship than a good word or deed. Like in one sense, does that just betray everything we want to be true about what it means to, to follow Jesus? But also, it, it strikes me that this is consistent with the way the text talks about speech. I was texting with a friend this week. To me, one of the more horrifying texts or things Jesus ever said is in Matthew 12. And yes, there's a context, and no, we're not going to get into it, but there's, there's still a principle. Listen to what Jesus says. I always go to 13, sorry. In, in, in 12, he, he says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, you'll have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Remember, this is the God who at one point identifies his son as the word, the logos. This is the God who on some level uh, helps us understand creation by saying he speaks order into creation. And it would make sense then that there's this correlating warning, isn't there? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that make sense? That, that, that our words... Again, think of some of the most painful things you've ever experienced. Think of some of the tracks that play in your head. And unfortunately, it's probably not the thing that that one coach said, the positive thing. It tends to be the negative. Uh, James, Jesus' brother, also says something that, and, and you know, this is the epitome for me of like, here's me, the village fool, talking about the very thing I'm not good at. But listen, Listen to, to James in chapter 3, and, and, and I think for me, uh, this was a week of being reminded that sometimes following Jesus isn't about what's new and novel, but just creating space to be reminded of these basic fundamentals, like, hey, we don't always need you to hit, hit home runs. In fact, if you just make contact, good things will happen. Like, it feels like that's kind of what's going on here. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies, or look at ships, they're, they're so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. So you see the metaphor here, something tiny can direct something so huge. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil 
full of deadly poison. Ugh. <laughs> There's just a heaviness, isn't there? Uh, or, 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 or how about this? How are you at long-term relationships? Uh, there's another interesting bit from this, this book, I think, and the research behind it is uh, the research would say that what makes a long-term working relationship, friendship, what, whatever that is, what, what makes that so difficult is that invariably something happens that's negative. Again, it could be something otherwise trivial or annoying. They, they do something. They're always late. There's some kind of trivial thing that enters the relationship. And what the research says, that in and of itself isn't the death knell of a friendship or a marriage or a dating relationship. What is? And I love the language, and I think it fits very well in 2021 where we're so sensitive to these words because what, what the, the way the authors say this is that, uh, that bad or negativity is highly contagious and equally as addictive. So, so we're, all, we're all living in the midst of a, of a virus that's highly contagious. I think we get what that means. And what they're saying is what happens, what makes long-term friendships, relationships of any kind difficult is invariably life brings about something negative, and yet it's extraordinarily difficult to not match their negativity. And the moment we match it, the moment we fight fire with fire, that then what we create is this spiraling dance into the garbage dump. That there's this, there's, this, uh, there's this highly addictive, highly contagious element to the bad. There's this, some of you may remember Ali, who used to drum for us a bunch, started his own business. Tommy's been talking with him. I think we're going to see him back here sooner rather than later. But Ali is, is also a high school, he, he works with high school kids and among other people in therapy. And I, it kind of haunts me whenever things go poorly in my parenting. Because one morning we were just talking about life and parenting and all this stuff. And he said, he said Adam, uh, the key to parenting a teenager is, is you've got to become the, you've got to stay the bigger, you've got to stay the adult or you've got to stay the bigger person. Just somewhat terrifying. And yet it's exactly, I think, what the research is saying. That in relationship, what causes things to just plummet is when we match it. Now, listen to what Jesus said in, in Matthew 5. And I get it, like, I'm breaking some rules of Bible study because I'm starting somewhere and then going to Jesus. But I also think sometimes for me, what just gives me so much confidence in Jesus, the historical person, is going, hey, look what modern science is telling us. And oh, guess what? The most brilliant human to ever live, who understand fully what it means to be human, he said similar, if not the same thing, and he was a part of a tradition that on many levels was upholding this. Listen to uh, Jesus in, in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, let's just stop. I, I guess I'd never thought about this. Like, almost any enemy was once, What? Almost, almost any enemy was, was once a friend, right? I mean, I suppose there's exceptions to that, but if I think of who I categorize as enemies or as I think of relationships that have deteriorated, they almost always started somewhere positive. Well, what's, what's Jesus pointing out here? To the extent to which we can say, like, sometimes our enemies weren't always enemies, what's he pointing out here? That, that his real challenge is it's really hard to not match someone else's vitriol. It's really hard to not go there when someone else does. Can you think of a relationship uh, where in hindsight, you went toxic and they didn't? 
And today there's a relationship because of what they did. I think of my friend Brian Hopkins, uh, who you've heard me reference, he helped start Narrate, but when he, we were on staff at a church together and we were just sideways, there was a lot of stress around building a building, him and I butted heads a few times over it. When he left to go plant a church in Journey, uh, he and I didn't speak. We'd been in a small group together, we had this long history together, and when he left for Bozeman, my attitude was like, good riddance. Two years later, he heard that we were working on planting a church in Helena and he swooped into the relationship. He offered to help. And for me, he's this kind of emblematic just person who points to the fact that the real challenge is staying a friend when someone else insists that you're the enemy. And then, frankly, I think this is at the core of what Jesus tells us God is like, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So notice, Jesus' fundamental claim about the identity of God is that he's someone who, despite how you're treating God, he treats you well. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then here's a tricky one. Be perfect, therefore, as as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect in what way? Well, here, at least, the the illustration is, you know what's hard? Not matching. That's the word Justin used this week in a conversation. Not matching the negativity coming from somewhere else. So so let's go back to that relationship that that went south. What happened? Here here to me is is what is, I think, important to process emotionally. Is the reason the relationship went south, like if you think of my arms as kind of a scale, is the reason that that the negative so outweighed the positive? Like is the reason that you don't talk because the relationship became so toxic because the bad so outweighed, by like almost 100%, the bad outweighed the good? Is that what happened? Was it just all bad? Or would you even go like, okay, not all, but like vast majority, like 75% of it was bad. And even then, you can probably catch yourself going, well, that's probably not fair. Okay, so how about just simple majority, 51%. Was there more bad than good? Is that what happened? Would you be open to the idea that actually the good did outweigh the bad? Maybe two to one or three to one? But just that bad, though there's that much less of it, is that much more impactful on on the psyche, on the relationship. Here's what the research suggests. And again, this is, you can take it up yourself and, and, and take a look at it. But the research would say, like, four to one is the floor. Like, for any relationship to persist, for any relationship to have any kind of staying power, whether we're talking work or marriage, whether we're talking parenting relationships, four to one, 80% of the time, the exchanges have to be positive. Like on one level, there's this like, don't, don't you, I mean, here, part of what happened to me this week is I just developed empathy for people who just go like, I'm out. Like, I've not understood, and I think one of the things that's been most confusing to me about COVID has been seeing the extent to which some people uh, insist on relationship and others are okay without it. And I think I've worked through the judgment of that. It's, it's not a judgment thing for me anymore, but it's just genuinely confusing, especially because I'm so stinking introverted and I'm seeing extroverted people who need less relationship time than me. And I actually had a conversation with an older friend this week, and I was like, are you surprised that like, suddenly you're the person advocating for people? And he's like, I don't understand. 
But there's a certain empathy, isn't there? And, and, I, and I think I'm starting to understand especially why like, people work 30 years in a career and they just go like, I'm out. I'm out. And I wonder, or, or, or people who are 30 years into relationship in general, I just, I wonder if part of it is like, in one sense, they're right. Like, 75% of the time, they were a good boss. 75% of the time, they were a good friend. 75% of the time, they were a good parent. And yet, it wasn't enough. And people just go, I'll just, I'll just stop hurting people. I'll just quit. I mean, think about the stories, and I'm going to operate on the assumption that if you're here when it's 400 below and there's a bunch of snow that church is a somewhat familiar context for you, though I also thank you if you're here and we're, we're thrilled if you're here and, and it's new to you. Like, think of how familiar the story is of like, I'm done with church. And most of the time, th- those are very, uh, you know, their hurts are legitimate. But isn't it somewhat scary that, that someone can go 5, 10, 15, 20 years into a relationship And it's not that suddenly all bad happened, but just one bad thing or or a handful of bad things can unwind the whole shooting match. What if bad is stronger than good? And what if, therefore, part of what it means uh, to be the people of God is to live with that awareness? Um, It was about the same time of year, my first year of creating a high school ministry at Harvest. I was working for the guy who I interned under before that. We were going to take, as I, I've talked about this recently, but I think there were 15, 15 passenger vans that we were going to drive from Billings to Minneapolis on a retreat. My friend Brian Hopkins, it was, uh, it was a retreat that he organized. He was the head guy where we had come from. And I remember Vern pulled me into his office because the conditions were similar to this. He pulled me and my friend John Switzer. I was 21 years old. He was 20 years old. We'd be jumping into these vans and driving them across the tundra. I remember he pulled us into his office, and he was a long-seasoned high school pastor. He had a sit-down, which, and he, he just didn't lead like this. And he looked at us, and he said, You guys, every kid in your van is precious cargo. Neither one of us were parents at the time. Like, I, I don't, you know, it was one of those, like, man, if I'd have, now I feel the weight of that. And that's really all he said. Every kid in your van is precious cargo. So, so lose the race be uncool, like he was just preaching to us, drive the speed limit, be reasonable, don't be stupid. And it seems like the, the, the message of scripture is people, they're, they're God's precious cargo. And yet, uh, we can really hurt people. You know, one last thought, and then we're gonna, I just wanna look at one other place in the text, but I've been learning from this guy, John Walton, who the more I listen to him, the, the more I like what he has to say. He's an Old Testament guru. And he points out that the image of God that we use so freely of one another is, is let's just say, most of the time in the Old Testament, it's not used of individuals, it's used of communities of people. That it's the image of God, it's not carried by you or me, which on some lengths is like, thank you, because I can't live up to that standard but that we collectively, in all of our diversity and strengths and weaknesses, or at least the strengths, you know, collectively we have enough strengths, we together demonstrate the image of God. You know, there's all this conversation right now about the future of church and the relevance of Jesus in this next generation. 
And I think as dark as this content is, there's part of it for me that's, that's actually pretty encouraging. That we together get to, to account for science and account for the reality of this and do relationship well. It seems to be the charter. And to welcome people into an environment where, where people are treated well. Andy Stanley, the greatest communicator in the world, uh, he had, I think, two sons and a daughter. And granted, they, they lived in the South. And one of his family rules was, before anybody sat down at the dinner table, uh, everybody had to stand behind their chairs at the dinner table until their mom, his wife, Sandra, I think is her name, sat down. And his rationale was, because if my daughters are ever in a relationship where they're not valued and treated well, I just want that to be really foreign to them. What if that's part of what it means to be the church? Is to take relationship that seriously that, that when people step into your kingdom at work, at school, wherever, that they, they're treated in a way that they're like, I, I just, just not used to being treated like this. Paul says something that I think is a bit of a benediction, and so we're going to sing one more song, but actually, rather than pray this morning, I just want to read Colossians 3 over us, because I think it's a great charter as to, like, okay, so in light of the, the heaviness of this, what, what's the empowering message of this? So as the band comes up, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm just going to, band can come up, you guys can stand, I'm just going to read this kind of benediction style over you, and if you're not familiar with that, that means it's just this kind of like, God, this is our prayer for each other. So picking up in verse 12, Paul says this, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. I think this all begs the question, how do we have the hard stuff? It's a big question. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.